A reading from St. Paul's letter to the Ephesians. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly realm. Just as he chose us in Christ before the foundation of the world to be holy and blameless before him in love. He destined us for adoption as his children through Jesus Christ, according to the good pleasure of his will, to the praise of his glorious grace that he freely bestowed on us and the beloved. In him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses, according to the riches of his grace that he lavished on us. With all wisdom and all insight, he has made known to us the mystery of his will, according to his good pleasure that he set forth in Christ, as a plan for the fullness of time, to gather up all things in him, things in heaven and things on earth. In Christ we have also obtained an inheritance, having been destined according to the purpose of him who accomplishes all things according to his counsel and will, so that we who were the first to set our hope on Christ might live for the praise of his glory. In him you also, when you had heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and had believed in him, were marked with the seal of the promised Holy Spirit. This is the pledge of our inheritance towards redemption as God's own people, to the praise of his glory. Hear what the Spirit is saying to God's people. As you can see, we don't have any icons in our sanctuary. This is what the gentle old monk said to me as he was giving me a tour of the property on my first day at the hermitage. I scanned the room and I saw, yeah, he was right. <laughs> there wasn't a single icon to be found. Other than a cross hanging above the altar, there were no images of Jesus or the saints. There were no religious paintings of any kind, no statues or even like fancy woodwork, right? On, on, the, on anything, on the altar, on the walls or ceiling, what have you, nothing. There's no stained glass. There was no artwork of any kind. There was just a plain altar in the center of the room, which was unusual. It was right in the center of the room, not pressed back, you know, towards the east side, as is traditional. But there was just a plain altar in the center of this room, and it was surrounded by white walls. The place looked more Calvinistic than Catholic. And this immediately struck me as odd, because the rest of the hermitage was beautifully, beautifully adorned. Just outside of the chapel building was a lush garden, vibrant with all sorts of colors. The hermitage itself was a mile up into the mountains, right off of Highway 1 on California's coast, so it was just spectacular. Everywhere you looked, your eyes would land on something stunning. Whether it was the fog rolling in over the crystal greenish-blue waters of the Pacific, or whether it was the orange sun-kissed mountain peaks that towered over you. It just took your breath away. There was a bench that I walked down to every day that I was there. 
and from that bench you could see whales surfacing out in the middle of the ocean. Even the noise, or the absence thereof, was magnificent. A serene, holy silence permeated everything. It was so powerful, so tangible, that it in and of itself was like a call to prayer. And this silence was only ever broken by the monk's chant, or by the sounds of the wilderness, the cool breeze flowing in off of the trees from the coast, the waves crashing against the rocks a mile down, the birds chirping in the pine trees. I'd often wake up in my little hut to the sound of sea lions barking at the base of the mountain. It is such a special place. These monks, they even had some of the the most splendid artwork I had ever seen hanging up in some very simple and low-trafficked places, such as in their cafeteria, a place where visitors were not usually allowed to come, and other corners of the cloister where visitors were seldomly invited to come in and visit. These monks had artwork hanging in those places. They knew how to celebrate beauty for beauty's sake, to be captivated by it. And this is precisely why it was so odd (laughs) that in the center of all of this sacred beauty, which clearly had been so carefully cultivated, the sanctuary itself, the heartbeat (laughs) of everything, was pretty plain. Do you know why this is? Why we don't have any icons of Jesus or the saints in our sanctuary around our altar? The monk asked me. I shook my head. I hadn't a clue. Then he smiled and he said to me, It is because you, you are an icon of Jesus to us. And every person who visits this place is an icon of the divine to us. Every visitor, an image of God. In his mind, there was no need of icons. They came through the door all the time, right? And the layout of the sanctuary itself, it even echoed this deeply held belief. As I said before, the altar was right in the center of a round-shaped room. So whenever you would go to the Eucharist there, the monks would stand in a circle around the altar and they invited their guests to do the same thing. So as you meditated on what was happening up on the altar. You could not do so without also having these other people, these living icons of Jesus, coming directly into your gaze. This monastic community, they have created a spectacular ritual that actually empowers people to see Christ in the Eucharist and Christ in their neighbor at the same time. For these monks, there was no duality between what happens on the altar and what happens each and every time they look somebody else in the eyes. My friends, all of life, the whole universe, is a living sacrament of Jesus Christ. Life itself is Eucharist, a great thanksgiving. We do not come here to church and do what we do on Sundays in order to escape the world. No, we come here to get at the heart of the world. 
We come here to learn how to see the heaven that rests at the heart of the world. We come here to learn how to sacramentize every single aspect of our daily lives. We come here and we practice treating one thing as incredibly sacred so that we can go and learn how to treat all things as incredibly sacred. The Eucharist is not about learning a dogma or an ethical code of conduct. It is about waking up to and about beholding, and it is about embodying the profoundest mystery in the universe. The Eucharist is not about learning how to get into heaven after you die. It is about cultivating an awareness of how close heaven has been to you all along. We meditate upon and we consecrate the bread and the wine in order to learn that there is no part of God's creation that does not share also in the reality of this most holy bread and wine. The Eucharist is the most special thing in the universe precisely because it is not any more special than anything else. The divine is not any more present in this bread and this wine than it is in the trees and the lakes, than it is in dogs, birds, and squirrels, than it is in stars and galaxies, than it is in your neighbor and your enemy, and yes, even in your own body. The Eucharist is so incredibly holy, sacred, not because it teaches us that it alone is the most holy and sacred thing of all, but because it teaches us that all of existence shares in its holiness, shares in its sacredness. And to be clear, this view of the Eucharist, it does not diminish the Eucharist's holiness in our eyes, not even in the slightest. No, it helps us to elevate everything else to its level of holiness. This may seem like an unusual thing for a traditional church mindset, and I understand that. But this way of viewing the Eucharist has been around longer than the Episcopal Church has been in existence. It's been around from the very beginning. This is precisely why St. Benedict, one of the West's greatest saints, taught his monks to revere every visitor as if Christ himself had come knocking on their door. They were to meditate on and to love the Christ in the face of every single stranger. It's also why Benedict taught his monks to honor every object of the monastery, every article of clothing, every dinner plate, every plant, every building, every bug, and yes, like every spoon, <laughs> as if these objects were as holy as the elements up on the altar. Because for Benedict, whenever you start to see Christ anywhere, such as in the Eucharist, you begin to see Christ everywhere. Everything becomes Eucharist. Going to church is about being grateful that what happens on the altar whenever the priest consecrates the elements and the people give the great amen 
all capital letters, letters, by the way, in our tradition. This is the same thing that happens to us at every waking moment of our existence. Christ is the priest. The world is your altar. Your life is bread and wine transformed into Jesus. Let the entirety of your existence be one great amen. My friends, St. Paul wrote this section in his letter to the Ephesians with the hopes that those who read it would have the Eucharistic eyes to see, that they would understand the great amen. Now, I understand that this particular section, along with, well, a lot of Paul's other writings, is kind of like drinking from a biblical fire hose. Like, he's throwing an awful lot of stuff at us here. But see it for what it is. A saint, in his excitement, gushing about and rambling about how much God has loved and blessed us, along with the entire cosmos. And just in case you missed it, because it's easy to miss, I want to point out two things that Paul says here that are so radical that the church at large has yet to even catch up to it, even 2,000 years later. Now, Paul starts his whole spiel off by saying that we have already, through Christ, been blessed with every spiritual blessing of the heavenly realm. Or as Paul says elsewhere, we have already been seated with Christ in heaven. So religion, church, it's not about going to heaven when you die. Why? According to Paul, you're already there. (laughs) Heaven is not a place beyond us, but the essence of life within us. Thus, true religion, true spirituality, it's about waking up to and about contemplating the heaven that exists in the here and the now. The heaven that envelops us. It's about learning how to see how the whole world has become heavenized. How everything on this planet is a living, breathing, evolving sacrament of the divine. Another thing... A few sentences later, Paul says that because of Christ, God has unveiled the mystery of his will to us. In other words, because of Jesus, we can now understand what God's project is all about. We can now see what God has been up to throughout the course of human history and the history of this planet. And surprise, surprise, God's project is not about saving individual souls. No, according to Paul... God is gathering everything up within himself. God is embracing everything. God is wrapping his presence around all things, enveloping, again, all things. God is divinizing everything, consecrating everything. Mystery of mysteries. God is doing to the whole world what the priest does to the bread and the wine on the altar. God is embracing, gathering all things into himself, making all things as holy as he is. This is the project. My friends, 
What if God's project became your project? Imagine this. What would it look like if you slowed down and you let yourself rest in God's resting in you? If you slowed down and let yourself rest in the sacramentality of your existence? What would happen if you started treating every animal, every person, every plant, every object within your house, every neighborhood in your town, even your own body, as if all of these things were as sacred to you as the Eucharist is? What would happen If you suddenly developed the ears to hear the great Amen, not only bouncing off of the walls of this sanctuary, but what if you started to hear it reverberating throughout the cosmos? It is the heartbeat of the universe after all. What would happen if you were to start treating the work of your hands as if it were something as holy as anything up on this altar? What would your life be like if you treated everyone at work, at home, at bridge club, at school, at the coffee shop, as if they were Christ himself? Christ come knocking on your door. (laughs) What would your life be like if everybody you knew treated you this way, as if you were Christ himself? What would our planet look like if we all stopped treating Mother Nature and her resources and her wildlife as objects to be exploited for our own benefit? And what if we started to treat everything on this planet as life-giving objects to be revered as a living sacrament? If we were all to finally grasp this vision, nothing short of a revolution would take place the very revolution that Jesus preached about and bled and died for. What would life look like for us if we finally got this vision? Well, Jesus had a name for it. It would look like the coming of the kingdom of God.